Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a no film school podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I'm John Fusco. And I'm Charles Hain. It's December 21st, 2017. And on this week's show, we'll bring you all the best of indie film from 2017. From our top camera choices to our favorite movies, to the best things we learned about filmmaking from a year in the life of the world's biggest online film community, No Film School. Welcome to the final Indie Film Weekly of 2017, coming at you from downtown Brooklyn, New York, home of No Film School. And as always, we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. This is our special final episode, as I mentioned, and it was a huge year for the No Film School podcast. We released almost 100 new episodes between Indie Film Weekly and our interview shows, and we reached over 1.3 million streams. So we have all of you to thank for that. And although this is a special episode with a special format, we can't leave you all hanging from last week, so of course I have to start with... As you know, you were probably on the edge of your seats wondering whether I was going to get tickets. John already had tickets, and now we've both seen it. I have actually seen it twice. Charles has seen it zero times, but at least that means between the three of us, we've seen it three times. Um, John, I gotta know. I've been waiting to ask you till on the air. What'd you think? I really don't want to tell people what I thought. <gasps> what? Yeah, I mean, it's only been, like, what, five days? I think that I want to give people some more time to, like, go in and... I didn't. I went into it blind. I didn't want to know what anyone thought about it, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna reserve my opinions for myself. Wow, for now. but I feel like at this point people look to us for, for that kind of thing. Yeah, it's different when it comes to Star Wars, I think. Okay, Coy John Fusco. And what did you think, Liz? Well, now that we can't, you know, go back and forth about it. You can go ahead. It's only my uh, own ideology. Your opinion shamed me. Um, I didn't even give my opinion, though, so how could I have opinion shamed you? That's like <laughs> the ultimate master move for opinion shaming. It's like I'm going to hold my opinion back so any opinion you give is judged. <laughs> It's like it's like a Jedi level. I know. Well, hey, Ooh. no spoilers, but there, you know, there's Jedi. There's some Jedi's in this movie. Sorry, no, it's called if I just the last it. Jedi, right? Yeah. We're not saying I'm not giving any plot spoilers. All I know is that you know, I'm sure you guys have heard at this point, it's like kicking ass at the box office, and there's been very mixed reviews. Critically, it's done very well among fans. It's like it's only got like a 50% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, which is, is surprising to me. I'll just say that, you know, I think it's worth seeing. Uh, and I'll be curious to hear what our readers think. I thought overall some super, super cheesiness. Like, and all of the Star Wars movies have cheesiness. This one maybe, and you all know I'm corny. This one might have gone a little over the corny line even for, for this guy. But... At the same time, there were also some surprises that I will not reveal, of course, that like genuinely surprised me. Will you at least tell me that, John? Did you did you anticipate all the twists and turns? No. Okay. I, th- so. I mean, I, I didn't. I don't necessarily agree that there were a lot of them, but there were a few that were like some significant yeah, ones. That yeah, that got me. So. Cool. Um. Anyway, it premiered last weekend to the second biggest opening ever in North America. What's where- What's the first biggest opening? That is a great question. Please tell me it's not Jurassic World. <laughs> oh. It's probably Jurassic World. It's a World. good question. I actually, I, I'm like blanking. I want to say that it might have been The Force Awakens. Oh, totally yeah. Force Awakens. 
anyway, this one uh, raked in an estimated $220 million, according to Disney, and over $500 million worldwide in the first five days. And what surprised me about that number is that it hasn't even been released in China yet, which is now the global box office leader. So, whoa, once it's open in China, it's, it's probably going to smash some records overall. But I would say on to some films that we are willing to share our opinions on, even the elusive Mr. Fusco. Uh, we posted our annual list of top indie films earlier this week, where several of the No Film School writers submit one choice and an explanation. So why don't we start with yours, John? All right. So uh, my favorite movie of the year is The Florida Project, and I'm pretty sure if I said that multiple times already on the podcast, but I've been uh, so busy this fall that I haven't seen a number of the supposedly amazing movies that have come out over the past couple months, Um, but I have to say it's going to take a lot to change my mind. So unless The Shape of Water, The Disaster Artist, Lady Bird, or Three Billboards can change my mind, The Florida Project is definitely it. It was also pretty cool being able to tell Sean Baker exactly that straight to his face when I interviewed him back in October. That was definitely a first for me. For me, it's everything a film should be. Beautifully shot, well-written, stunning performances, hilarious, heartbreaking, making subtle statements on some issues going on in our country without being overly political. I loved every single second of that movie. I also have a weak spot for coming-of-age stories, and this movie features not just one, but three. The first, of course, is the incredibly immersive childhood routine of Mooney, from Brooklyn Prince in one of the most out-of-nowhere performances in 2017, it still blows my mind that Baker was able to find a kid that would be able to play this role, let alone someone who would absolutely destroy it. The second is, of course, Haley, Mooney's mom, who has to stop doing illegal things to provide for her daughter, get her shit together, and become a mother for her child. And the third is Oscar favorite Willem Dafoe, whose character actually has to come to terms with the fact that his son is too old now to see him as a father figure, and in a way uses Mooney and the other children of the motel as his surrogate offspring. Each character's journey is intricately linked to the other's actions, and any growth they go through comes from the decision that someone else made in the movie. Now, I'm going to get a little conceptual here, but I think ultimately Mooney, Bobby, and Haley represent the past present and future values of an American society that, much like the Mattel, may have a nifty-looking exterior, but behind closed doors is mired in chaos. Well, I'm with you, John. I haven't seen some of the seasonal favorites, including the Florida Project, which I'm dying to see. But my selection was one that I just talked about on the podcast last month, and this one really took me by surprise. It's Agnes Varda and JR's Faces Places, or Village Visage, in its native French, And I love both of the artists, but the description just like sounds pretty straightforward and it wouldn't have necessarily had me running to the theaters. It's a collaboration between the legendary 89-year-old filmmaker Varda and the 33-year-old street artist JR. It follows a series of journeys that the unlikely friends make through the French countryside in an adorable camera mobile, meeting basically average folks, hearing their stories and creating the giant wheat-pasted portraits of them that JR has become globally recognized for. Here's the thing. The movie is so full of heart that the love jumps off the screen and washes right over the audience, which turned out to be exactly what I needed in this tumultuous and increasingly cynical year. So as I said in my blurb on the site, the film dallies both in whimsy and nostalgia and poses musings relevant to any artist about inspiration, longevity, chance, and the power of curiosity. What about you, Charles? I gotta go with Lady Bird, Lady Bird, Lady Bird. I think this movie should win Best Picture. 
there are a lot of great high school movies out there, but most of them live in this like weird bubble that are isolated from a lot of the really awkward layers of reality. It's like when you finally watch Big Mouth and you're like, oh, yeah, you can't really make a show about 13-year-olds without talking about sex in the way Big Mouth does. Lady Bird finally talks about like class in a way that like obviously the 400 Blows did, but a lot of American coming-of-age movies don't. And like your teenage years are really the years where you start to see the true implications of that in America. And Lady Bird deals with that so well. It's also like so generous with all of its characters and the relationship between the mom and the daughter is like so well structured, so well nurtured, so beautiful. Um, Tracy Letts, who is always amazing, is also amazing in it. It's just an overall great movie. I said this uh, when I wrote about it, but it also uses a Dave Matthews Band song as a key emotional moment. And yet, I still <laughs> like the movie, which is like an amazing achievement, considering the fact that I lived through that era. And so, like, I'm still a little traumatized by Dave. My wife and I saw the movie, and it was like a cold Brooklyn night. And we went in, and like, it captures the spirit of like California and that time and that place. Like, it was like totally magic. We were in a glow from that movie the rest of the night. So, uh, yeah, Lady Bird, definitely my favorite indie. That's so funny. I'm just recalling that when I was like heavily using the dating sites, it would be an automatic like like swipe to the, you know, I don't like you direction if they listed DMB as one of their like top things, meaning yeah. the Dave Matthews band. I'm I, like, nope. A, I think that's very fair. <laughs> B, I'm developing some theory that Dave Matthews band is actually a really interesting element in pop culture because not only Lady Bird, but also Community had a great episode about Dave Matthews band. So there's something about Dave Matthews band that works in media, but is soul crushing in real life. <laughs> I mean, maybe there's some merit to it, but if you're going to go as far as it, call it the DMB, I'm going to I'm going to give you an no. Real anyway. fans call him Dave. <laughs> Good to know. So our writer Chris Boone also chose Lady Bird, and he's he um, pointed to one of the same things you just did, saying that ultimately what made it his favorite movie was the relationship between Lady Bird and her mother, played by Laurie Metcalf. A quote he wrote that I really liked, he said, The film covers the spectrum of the challenging mother-daughter dynamic and all its beauty. Shouting matches, tender moments, tragic honesty, deep cuts, unspoken love. So true to the diverse nature of our writers, we've got some really interesting outlier choices on there. I mean, Get Out and Mudbound made the list, of course. But so did the critically panned Don't Swallow My Heart Alligator Girl by director Felipe Bragancha and the criminally underseen gook by director Justin Chan. So we will link to the whole darn thing in this week's podcast post. By the way, while we're talking about our end-of-year posts, I'll mention that if you're really last minute and haven't picked out your gifts yet, we've got a great annual list called the 2017 Holiday Gift Guide for Filmmakers with a bunch of cool suggestions starting at just 7 bucks. And speaking of spending our hard-earned cash, Charles, can you tell us about some of the best new gear from 2017? I will totally tell you about some of the best new gear from 2017, some of which you don't even have to pay anything for, which is especially cool. There's like some great new free stuff in addition to all of the stuff we can spend our money on. Woo! So it's been a really active year in the tech space. I'm going to actually start this chronologically backwards and we're going to start with like post-production and then move to production. Uh, in post, there have been like huge new developments from Apple and Adobe and Blackmagic to their editing platforms. Blackmagic made a huge... Uh, push into sharing projects between multiple users with Resolve 14.1, which came out a couple weeks ago. And they're pushing really as hard as they can to become an editor. And they might just take some market share because if nothing else, it's totally free. Like not even you got to get a student subscription for $20 a month free. You can just get it for free. 
which is like such a huge market differentiator, especially for indies and students. Premiere, who are already super dominant in the editing space, is pushing really hard to stay there. And they're doing that with like a big focus with uh, artificial intelligence. They're pushing a lot into VR. If VR becomes a thing, and like I'm still not convinced VR is going to become a thing, but if it finally becomes a thing, like five years after we were promised it would be a thing, I think Premiere will have the tool set and Adobe that people are looking for to do it. And so I think that's the bet they're doing to keep in the mix. Apple, the big news out of Apple is they finally caved. They finally started putting tools into Final Cut Pro X, like a three-way color corrector that everybody's been asking for for five years. And uh, it's really rare that Apple's like, hey, guys, so I'm sorry. I'm I'm. And they never actually said they're sorry. They just did the thing we wanted them to do. But this would be the equivalent of, like, Apple putting back in a little three-and-a-half-inch disk drive after they took it out of the iMac in the 90s, which is an old people reference. Um, this is huge for us because we all want it back, so thank you, Apple. Oh, and Avid Release Media Composer First, which is a thing. Um, what is the thing? Uh, Media Composer First is a, is a free application from Avid, which, hooray, free, that lets you practice using Media Composer. But it's crippled to only four tracks, and its projects can't move back and forth with other Avid projects. So it's, like, really limited. It's Look, I understand releasing a free product. You've got to, like, really pick your target. Like, what do I give away free to make people still pay for the full version? Black Magic is like, we give away 95% of it, and then we make the 5% you have to pay for so good, we still get people to pay for that. Avid's like, we'll give you about 15 to 17% of it for free, and then if you want any of the really useful tools, you have to pay. And it just seems like a strategy straight out of, like, 2004. So, Media Composer first. I'm sure I will hear in the comments about how I say mean things about Avid. I like script sync and phrase finds. Um, Avid products that came back this year in another story of a tech company relenting and giving the users back what they wanted because they'd gotten rid of it and they brought it back. So I don't Power own, to the people. Power to the people. And I don't only say mean things about Avid. I like phrase find and script sync. Um, lighting has been, strangely, bigger news than cameras this year. There's a whole host of new products in the LED space. Hive finally started shipping their Wasp 100C LED, which is like the most accurate and controllable LED we've worked with. You can dial in like specific, like not only one wavelength. You can't say only 665 nanometers, but you can dial in like a really tight color spike, as you saw in our Veracam noise issue of like, I just want the red wavelengths. I just want the blue wavelengths. I want nothing else. You can really control the color output in a way that's like maybe not always useful, but sometimes cool. On the other end of the spectrum, if you just want like raw power, Aperture started shipping the 300D, which is a monstrously powerful LED light, somewhat equivalent to like an old school 2K tungsten, although it's a much different light, so you do it for different things. But it can also like run off V-mount batteries. So we're getting into the space that like lighting is where a lot of the exciting news is, which doesn't mean there's been nothing fun in cameras. Can I actually ask you something? Sure. So... Last year, we dubbed it the year of the lens. This year, it seems like we're dubbing it the year of the LED. So what do you think next year is going to be? Oh, please let it be shared storage. Ah, oh, shared storage is still so fucking expensive. If I want, like, four people to work on a project together, we can go out and we can do it with, like, $3,000 cameras, and we can cut it on, like, $2,000 laptops, and then you're still, like, getting bids for $30,000 for a shared media solution. And it's like, why is there not, like, a... Yeah, so that tech companies... 
Make me happy and give me cheap shared storage. I honestly think, in reality, 2018 is going to be more crazy innovation and lighting. Like, that's really the competitive space right now. I think we're getting really close to a point where, like, your entire truck could be LED or plasma. Mm -hmm. And I think 2018, we're going to see a whole lot of big LEDs hitting the streets. Okay, so what everyone obviously wants to know about is cameras. Yes, so last up, I saved the best for last cameras. So cameras have been odd lately since, like, improvements aren't radical. So, like, Red went 8K, but, like, having tested the Red 8K versus the 6K, they're not, like, that different. You get, like, a little bit less noise with the 8K, but it's not, like, dramatic. Like, the Alexa has been winning Oscars with basically the same sensor for nine years now. Um, Red came out with the Monstro 8K cameras, but, like, the footage didn't on the launch video didn't seem like anything you couldn't have shot with last year's Red. So there have been some cool stuff. Sony finally is really getting in the game with Venice, which is like Sony matching an Alexa and a Red in quality in a way that I think a lot of people didn't feel like the F65 did. So Venice, I think, is really exciting. Um, C200 is a major leap in quality over the C100 for about the same price. So that's good news out of Canon. But then the biggest news of the year, I think, for most of us, definitely for me, is the EVA1 from Panasonic. Native 2500 ISO for great low-light work. There's an EF mount, but wooden camera already has a PL mount swap you can do. If you have a Shogun Inferno, you can get raw 5.7K out of it, which is a whole lot of bang for your buck, all for a $7,500 camera. Um, obviously, a lot of those features were available on more expensive cameras before, but $7,500 starts to get in that range where, like, you can reach or four of you can split it or someone you know buys it or even the rental price is so much cheaper than a Red or Alexa. But we're really going to, I think, see a lot of beautiful stuff about it. It also just feels like a really fresh body design with, like, a lot of consciousness of gimbal rigging and moving the camera in a way that a, a lot of other camera manufacturers, I don't think, uh, will have some catching up to do now that it's out on the streets. Cool. So what about some, like, overall tech and gear trends that you noticed this year? So looking at our tech posts this year, the amazing thing to stood out to me is how little it's actually about gear. Right. So as we talked about during our NAB podcast, 2017 is like a year where tech seems to have plateaued a little bit. Like, for instance, the viewfinder app that everybody uses on their phones on set, Artemis, has had some minor improvements, but it's basically the same app as six years ago. Like, Alexa sensors are nine years old. Our biggest camera post of the year was about the GH5, which is a great camera, but it's like a $1,500 camera. So it's like about affordability, not about some amazing new feature. So the trend in our articles this year was definitely like people were really excited about what you can do with tech. We had a huge post about that one-shot video that was a massive set that looked like VFX because the set was so big. And then we had a lot of traffic on our post where Steve Yedlin was basically like, 4K doesn't matter, everyone. Uh, his big knockdown of resolution myths. myths. So Or 8K, right? Or, 8K oh. is a myth. Was he saying 4K is a myth? Yeah. He was saying wow. everything beyond 2K is mostly marketing hype. <laughs> and, like, I watched that video with my class recently on a 20-foot screen, and we watched it in HD, and he keeps demonstrating because he zooms in on part of the frame and is like, 4K, 2K, 4K, 2K. You Even on a 20-foot screen, the difference between 4K and 2K is basically non-existent. Like, HD is so much resolution. Um, so... We also got a huge amount of traffic on our post on building a Hackintosh and also and the end of Final Cut 7, with which both sort of point towards a world where, like, I feel like 
we're not going to be as Mac only as we used to be. There's very few software programs left that only run on Apple. Uh, and I think like Final Cut X is the one that does. But if you need that and you have a PC, we've got that great tutorial that 80,000 people read about doing a Hackintosh. So you can always Hackintosh your way into running Final Cut X. So that's the stuff we sort of saw this year. Cool. All right. Well, so that was the year in tech. John, Liz, what really stand out to you from this year in interviews? Well, it's definitely one of the joys of the job is that we get to sort of talk to so many filmmakers and below-the-line folks that we admire. I would say one of my favorite interviews from the year was with Matt Jensen, the DP of Wonder Woman. Like, I generally love working with DPs because even though they're often kind of like gruff on the outside, even female DPs, they have to be particularly sensitive to light and nuance And they're usually like some of the real artists on the set. So in this case, it was really exciting to speak to the cinematographer of one of the year's biggest and most anticipated films. And part of what's fun about it is that these guys don't get interviewed that often. So they're willing to like recount behind the scenes details in a way that directors might not want to or might sort of be over. So here's a clip of Jensen telling me about the challenges of shooting the awesome No Man's Land scene. I don't know if you remember it, but it's where Wonder Woman, played by Gal Gadot, is running between the Allied and German trenches during World War One. I. I think I'm very proud of the No Man's Land sequence for uh, a lot of reasons. And um, it was made up of so many pieces, both um, uh, in camera and uh, on uh, on our on our set, um, and then uh, smaller detail work uh, that was on green screen, and um, you know made up of 500 frames a second uh, footage, and um, a, a good combination of stunts and live action and um, and visual effects, and you know complicated camera rigs. We um, for for example, I mean all the stuff of of Gal running across uh, no man's land. Um, that really was a mud bog, and very hard for her to run in, and also nearly impossible for us to keep up with her with the camera and get it over this this terrain. So, um, you know, we rigged essentially a sky cam, uh, which is you know not unlike what you see. Uh, on Monday Night Football, with the uh, you know the cameras flying all around all the, the all over the stadium to get those those flowing shots of of the kickoffs and things, and so mm-hmm. we did something like that out there to track with her to run, and um, you know the art department is is building a, a path for her to run so that she has a smooth path for her to run, but it also has to look like um, it's all part of the set and wasn't just made there wasn't made you know specifically for her and um and then uh you know the light kept changing on me that day because it was a classic um sort of london uh winter day where i had bright sunshine and then i had overcast and and everything in between and so the light's changing and i'm writing exposures and then you know and then i'm talking to the vfx team and they said well we'll replace some of the sky and you know, kind of put some clouds broken up in the background where when we had just gray uh, flat skies to suggest that, you know, the clouds are moving through and the sun is breaking through. So, you know, all of that 
becomes a, it, it becomes a, a, a great collaboration. Okay, so I'll just start off this whole thing by saying I didn't actually do a ton of written interviews this year. I think I really only did one looking back. Um, and that's because I was so focused on getting us some of these great podcast interviews. Um, and I'm really proud of the content we got for you guys to listen to. These podcast interviews have proven so valuable as an educational resource to me as just some guy who didn't go to film school that wants to make movies. And were a huge reason I felt confident enough to make my own short this fall. And I'm not just saying this to get you to listen. I truly believe if you listen to every one of our interview podcasts from this year, then you will have more than enough information in mind to stop making excuses and go out and create something. So do it. Woohoo! I'll be editing together some of the best advice for a few end-of-the-year compilation episodes that we'll be releasing starting next Thursday. So if you don't want to go back and listen to, like, the 70 hours of interviews that we got this year, then this is a good place to start. Um, I promise they won't be overlong or anything, and that the whole series will be good. So, with all that in mind... My favorite post I made this year was a recap of Gareth Edwards' South by Southwest keynote speech. It's called How Gareth Edwards Beat the System to Land Godzilla and Rogue One. And just like from a personal experience, it was really incredible to watch someone so fresh off living their dream tell us how he got there in such a humble and educational way. His story is super inspiring. He literally got his start creating shitty VFX shorts in his mom's house after college. From there, he got hired by a VFX agency, then broke away and started convincing studio heads to hire him exclusively because he realized he was like getting paid maybe like a sixteenth of what he should have been getting paid for the work that he was doing. And then he started convincing them to let him direct. And then he made the movie Monsters. And then right after that, he made Godzilla. And then right after that, he made Star Wars Rogue One. So he went from making one indie to two enormous blockbusters within the only three movies that he's ever made. He credits this work ethic to having a constant fear that he wasn't doing the thing he always felt he was meant to do, direct, and he wouldn't stop until he got there. Here's a quote. I found that what happened was that this fear of failure that puts you off from doing something, that chases you through your life, is sort of met head-on with this bigger fear of having never tried. There's a certain point where the two meet, and it feels like, if I don't do this now, I'm never going to do it. End quote. I won't recap too much more of the article itself, just his other major thesis, which is that it's never been a better time to be someone who's trying to break into the film industry. If there's a point to all this, he concluded, the promise of digital technology is that it's not really about being able to create spaceships and robots and dinosaurs. It's that everyone can now afford to make a film. Everyone can have a voice. There's no reason you can't be the next Gareth Edwards. These days, there's even more room for aspiring directors to take advantage of tools the way Edwards did back in the 90s. It all comes down to recognizing the trends and teaching yourself skills that make you valuable as a creator. Not a director, not a producer, not a writer, someone that can do all of those things that will eventually lead you to the one thing that you want to do, hopefully. So final quote from him from this speech There is definitely a gap that's growing between high-budget filmmaking and low-budget filmmaking, with this void happening in between. Even from 10 years ago, the difference between a $200 million movie and how that looks, and a $1 million movie and how that looks, is getting narrower and narrower. Digital technology is allowing kids at home to do amazing stuff, so somewhere between that gap, something's got to give. I don't know what it is, nobody knows what it is, but I think it's never been a better time to be a filmmaker. That's so cool. I feel so good inside. (laughs) 
John's note about podcasts reminds me to mention one of my other favorite interviews of the year, which happened to be a podcast. And it wasn't that it was so practical with hands-on advice, but more that it was so inspiring and entertaining. And I think you just took from John's notes that, like, we like to get inspired around here, and it keeps us kind of motivated. The podcast episode is called The First Family of DIY on how to make your own damn movie. And the family I'm referring to are the Kaufmans. If you haven't heard of them, the dad is Lloyd Kaufman, who created the Toxic Avenger, and he's like the king of B-movies. He has this movie studio, Troma Entertainment, that's produced and distributed more than a thousand films. Now, the mom is on the other side of the spectrum. She's Pat Swinney Kaufman, who was the deputy film commissioner for New York State for 20 years and was called one of the most powerful women in the U.S. film industry by Variety. So she's like, he's like totally alternative. She's totally mainstream. Um, and then their daughter is Lisbeth Kaufman, who co-founded KitSplit, which is now the biggest online camera rental company. So I don't know about you guys, but many of us might come from families that don't really kind of get or support our artistic endeavors. But with the Kaufmans, they're all in on the game. And between them, they've seen so many different aspects of the industry firsthand. So having them all in the booth was both as off the wall as you might expect, but also full of insights, especially about how to stay innovative and ahead of the curve in our ever-changing media landscape. So I left the discussion wanting to be adopted by Pat and Lloyd, and you might too. I guess if we're saying our favorite interview podcast, then I should probably say mine too. Sure. Which was uh, Sean Baker, as I mentioned earlier. I mean, obviously, it was my favorite movie of the year. He's like a huge inspiration. He's just like the epitome of a DIY uh, self-funding film guy, director. Um, and, uh, it was just really great to sit down with him and talk with him. I like had all these lists of questions, I had like at least 20 questions prepared for him and we didn't even get to one. Like we didn't even, we didn't even talk about the Florida project. We sat together for a half an hour and we didn't even get to the point where we could talk about the Florida project because his background is just so remarkable and the steps that he took to be able to get to make his first actual million dollar movie he's made five movies before this um all for really really cheap um with people that like just love to make film and finding other people that would love to help him make his films uh so it's just really it's great for people who uh are like sean uh was back in the day who are relying on people to give them favors, um, but, you know, are humble and appreciative of the fact and uh, don't take anything for granted. So I forget the name of the article, I think it's, or the podcast, I think it's uh, something along the lines of um, Sean Baker on why you need to invest in yourself when no one else will. Um, And I think that it's a really great resource. So check it out. Those two podcasts are kind of similar in a way, like they ended up being a little little meandering and more about like these fascinating people that we can all be inspired by. Of course, another thing we can do when talking about the past year is to look at some of the industry trends and help predict some things for next year. So our most unexpectedly frequent story this year was about the mountain of sexual harassment and assault charges in the industry. Now, the acts, of course, were nothing new, but the speaking out en masse resulting in actual punitive actions was new. And it will change our business in ways we probably can't fully predict yet. My hope for 2018 and beyond is that the pain of these stories is ultimately healed in some part, at least, by having overall more aware and safer work environments across the entertainment field. 
Along those same lines, I see already that more women and people of color are getting greenlit, and 2018 will see the first black superhero franchise in Black Panther, and I'm going to go ahead and boldly predict, you heard it here first, that we will have more than one female filmmaker nominated for Best Director Oscar in the same year within the next five years. Inshallah. Another topic we covered at length this year was the net neutrality rules, which were officially overturned last week, potentially changing Internet access as we know it. However, there's already a multi-state lawsuit challenging the net neutrality vote led by our very own New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman. And my hopeful prediction is that the vote throwing out net neutrality will itself be thrown out in the next year. Inshallah. (laughs) Some of my most popular stories this year had to do with giving people more access to movies, whether in the form of the $10 a month movie pass or libraries around the U.S. enabling free streaming of the Criterion Collection with a library card. And I'm hoping that this trend continues, though I suspect there will be some serious consolidation among streamers and traditional theaters alike in the next year. And personally, I've taken a step away from working on personal projects while devoting my time to you all at No Film School. But I'd like to make some progress this year, particularly on developing a kids TV show that I've been toying with for a while. So if any of you out there have experience in that arena, please get in touch. Well, if we're talking about personal hopes, I'd like to finish my short. This year was a whole education in how to start a film, and now I'm in for an equally valuable and brutal education in how to finish one, I'm sure. So if we're talking NFS, I'd love to get into some more videos for you guys. Maybe, you know, we can have some of these podcast interviews start being taped or do some do some shit live, I wrote here, <laughs> for you guys. Uh, Ryan is semi-back, right? Am I allowed to say that? Well, too Your bad. Your guess is as good as mine. If he, uh, he's not back enough to be able to tell me no, so <laughs> he's semi-back. And he's currently looking around for studios where we can expand into video production. So we should have more on that soon. And I guess, like, if we're asking for help, like, if you know of any studio spaces that are, you know, ideal for content creation, get in touch with us. Yeah, small video production studios where we could potentially also have office space in Brooklyn or the five boroughs. Let us call at us. Okay, four of the five boroughs. No, not really Harlem either, or the Bronx either. I love Staten. I'm putting it on the record. Staten's the best. Okay, if you know of any facilities in Queens, Brooklyn, or Manhattan. Because Liz doesn't want to take a ferry to work every day and be no. a sailor. No. Who gets to take a boat to work. Anyway, good call, John. All right, well, moving on. In terms of movies, I'm not really sure what I'm hoping for. Uh, I just like to keep being surprised by new voices. Um, I think that this year was an awesome year for that. So I just want to keep things going on that trend. Um, Gear-wise, will 2018 finally be the year I purchase a micro four-thirds camera? Will it be a Sony or a GH5 or something else entirely? I hope there's a new camera that comes out that just makes this an easy decision. And uh, yeah, that's it for me. It's never an easy decision. There's always too many cameras. I really wish it was... In 2003, there was one camera. It was the DVX100. And now there's always like seven to pick from. Yeah, I have no idea. I keep going back and forth. All right, so for 2018 for me, my biggest hope... So the school where I teach, the Fierstein Graduate School of Cinema, we're graduating our first ever class of graduates this May. And honestly, I just hope they all make it and survive without sleep for the next five months. And then I hope they all have jobs 
and are getting movies made within like a month of graduation. It might not be realistic that they're all working, but I really hope that they all do. Um, so if anybody's hiring young, hungry editors and whatnot, uh, Fierstein's graduating a whole new class in May. Um, on top of that, like I, like John and Liz, uh, would like to get back to personal work. I'm working on a script for a short film to do next summer, and uh, I haven't directed anything personal in a couple of years. I did my feature in 2012, and then like other work projects have taken me a lot of ways. And like, I'll admit it, I'm nervous to get back in the like personal project, not for a client, not for someone else, not for like, you know, this isn't like a job. It's like a thing I want to do. And uh, that's a whole different animal. And I'm very excited to do it. But that is like a big thing for me. Uh, it's in the calendar that I'm doing it in July. Uh, and now I'm going to do it in July. So I'm really excited about that. And then in terms of gear, all I want for 2018 is cheaper shared storage. Like cameras are so great and affordable. Lighting is so great and affordable. Please, somebody make like a four or $5,000 thing that like four of us could edit off of. And uh, or if you already make it, tell me about it and let me do a review of it. Uh, that will be really exciting. I'm excited about No Film School moving into video in next year. Um, the pivot to video sort of happened on the web a couple of years ago, and it's going to be fun for No Film School to jump into that. And uh, yeah, and then I'm jealousy of everybody going to Sundance. Jealousy is a good thing, though. <laughs> So as most of you know, we started a segment this year called Weekly Words of Wisdom, which has become one of my favorites. So we decided to include in this episode an annual version where we undertook the nearly impossible task of choosing the best filmmaking advice we heard all year. Okay, so I'll start. My advice comes from an article called Why Richard Linklater Thinks You Won't Make It in the Film Industry. My experience at New York Film Festival this year was awesome. I caught two of my favorite films of the year there in The Florida Project and The Square, and I got to talk to both of the directors of those films for the podcast after seeing them. I was also pleasantly surprised by Meyerowitz stories, uh, which, you know, that's three of the four movies that I saw. Uh, the last one, however, was uh, not that good, and if I'm being completely honest... It was a pretty major disappointment for my experience at the New York Film Festival. And that was Richard Linklater's Last Flag Flying. I won't get into why I wasn't a fan of the film here, but I think much of it has to do with the fact that I respect Linklater so much that to see a film of his, uh, especially one that deals with such delicate issues, uh, fall so flat, it just intensified my feelings on it to the 10th degree. So, you know, kind of like what we were talking about earlier, about how people who see Star Wars are disappointed by a small thing, and then that one small thing will cause them to hate the entire movie and kind of blow it out of proportion. But it's all based on their own tastes. All this was made worse by the fact that No Film School was denied a chance to interview him by publicists since our outlet isn't quite mainstream enough, disheartening since I respect him for his roots as a low-budget independent filmmaker, and our podcast centers around film education, which is another thing that he uh, strives to, uh, I guess, uh, he promotes. Come, promotes. Yeah, he, he wants to come off as a film educator. Um, so we don't deal with publicity. We deal with film education. For these reasons, it was hard to drag myself out of Brooklyn all the way up to Lincoln Center to watch a talk Linklater was giving about his favorite movies. But I ended up enjoying the conversation so much that it redeemed his earlier transgressions. My favorite takeaway from the talk was the best way to learn about film in Linklater's mind is to watch as many films and shoot as much as you can. 
my operative part being watch as many films as you can because it's not easy for everyone to just go out and shoot as much as they can. Here's a quote he said. I think the big jump for me was that films were always kind of a social thing. At some point, you just got to make the decision, well, no one is going to keep up with me. I'm going to a 12 o'clock show and then a 3 o'clock show, 5.30. You get used to buying that ticket alone, getting your seat wherever. And it's fun because you tend to meet those other loners. Like, you always notice there's that other guy who sat over there, and about six months later, you finally go, hey man, you've seen 75 movies together, so you just start talking about cinema. For me, through that, these weirdos and I kind of started a film society. I meet film students at the Film Society in Austin, and they're like, I haven't been to any new theater. I haven't seen anything. And I'm like... You want to make films? You're not going to make it. I can tell you right now. Go do something else. Because you don't love movies enough. You just think movies are fun. You can't expect anything but what you give it. Your dedication has to be complete, particularly when you're getting started. You have all this passion for it, but you don't really have the experience within the medium, so you need to be more all in. I found more of a balance when I got older. It fit into my life. I could have a life outside of it to whatever degree. It's kind of like joining the priesthood without those prohibitions. Ultimately, this is the biggest piece of advice we can take away from Linklater's comments. If you really want to turn your filmmaking into a career, then it can't just be a hobby. You have to live and breathe cinema. Go out and see as many movies as you can, and treat them as seriously as you would any piece of great literature. I went to two different ends of the spectrum for my uh, annual words of wisdom, new school and old school. It's kind of cool because Linklater kind of falls somewhere in the middle. So it turns out that Twitter can be a good place to get filmmaking advice. Soderbergh, Del Toro, and many others will regularly drop gems on the platform, so I recommend following your favorite active directors. A great one in particular is Ava DuVernay. In fact, we recently wrote up a 14-point film school that she tweeted to a first-time filmmaker, and I'll share just three of them here as part of my yearly words of wisdom. One, be prepared for hundreds of questions per day. You are now question-answerer-in-chief, which I thought was a very apt way of describing a director or especially a producer. Now, on the flip side, don't be afraid to say you don't know the answer. You don't have to know all the answers to everything. More than half of the people's jobs who are on set are to help you find the answers. And this one, I think, rings true for any kind of artistic project you're working on. She says, remind yourself why you're telling this story every morning on the way to set, why it's important to you every morning. On the other side of the coin is Agnes Varda, who I mentioned earlier, and is not on Twitter. My most inspiring film line of the year came from her in Faces Places, which was, Chance has often been my best assistant. But she also did lots of talks and Q&As around the film this year, and we covered one, also actually at New York Film Festival, in a post called New Wave Crash Course, Agnes Varda's personal film school. Her advice rings true to what we've heard from many other filmmakers, but somehow I believe it more when it comes from an almost 90-year-old and founder of one of cinema's most influential movements. She said, quote, I never give advice, but what I will say is, believe in whatever you like. Believe in the filmmakers and films you love, books you've read, paintings you've seen. They should feed you. They should give you the desire to express yourself. You will find what you need to say deep down in your imagination. Now that everybody has little cameras even on their telephones, it's no longer a question of tools. It's about finding the desire, the emergency, that pushes you to do it. Anybody can be a filmmaker. What you need is imagination. A project has to be yours, and you have to be the only person right for the job. 
So before next year rolls around, we will have posted about 20 year-end posts with elaborations on what you heard in this episode and so much more, including everything from the best innovations in droning to boldest cinematic risks of 2017 to a really cool one John just did that went up yesterday about the 14 most visionary music videos of 2017, complete with a YouTube playlist. Where are all the negative comments, guys? I'm waiting for you guys to start trolling on my post like you did last year, and they're not here. So come on, get at me. I thought we were going to get a lot of hate on our best cameras of 2017 post, too, and, you know, we're still waiting. Uh, One that I'm pretty excited about that hasn't come up yet is our annual Best Cinematography post. We put it together like our Best Indie Films list, where several No Film School writers contribute blurbs about their choices. And you'll see some on that list that you might have missed on our Best Indies list. We're having video essayist Nelson Carvajal do a supercut of the chosen films, and I'm sure it will be stunning. So look out for that probably on Christmas Eve. Before we go, I want to give a big, huge shout out to our No Film School writers who make sure that we can publish great new insights about filmmaking and new gear every single day. They're based all over the place, as near as Brooklyn and as far as Paris, and we wouldn't want to do this without them. That means you, Charles, Chris, V. Renee, Oakley, Darren, Loretta, Dylan, Max, Hawkins, Micah, Jason, Justin, Emily, and everyone else who's contributed to the site this year. Love you, mean it. So while we won't have any more Indie Film Weeklies this year, we will have an extra special episode of our interview podcast in its place next Thursday, which John kind of mentioned earlier. Is there anything else you want to say about it? No, not really. I mean, I'm going to be probably releasing this as a three or four part series. Uh, Each one will have clips from three or four different. No, I think it's actually like five or six different episodes. Um, Again, like I'm saying, we have so much content. Um, and it's, it's good stuff. I'm sifting through all of it right now. And, uh, you know, like I said, if you can't listen to all 60, 70 hours of the interview portions of our No Film School podcast, then this is a good place to start. And then, you know, once we're done with this little recap, we'll be right back in, at Sundance and we'll be getting a lot more uh, new voices. Super exciting and like, wow, time flies. So meanwhile, if you haven't done so yet, please, please give us a holiday gift and subscribe to the No Film School podcast on iTunes or wherever you find podcasts. And we'd sure appreciate a good rating as well. You can read about everything we talked about this episode and more articles and interviews about the craft of filmmaking every single day at nofilmschool.com. And of course, stay in touch. I'm at LizFilm on Twitter. I'm at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. Jim underscore John underscore Jim. I wanted to sing it like a Christmas carol, but it didn't come out right. I'm Jewish. Anyway, so Charles is at Charles Hain. We are all at No Film School. And thanks again for all your feedback and support from the second year of Indie Film Weekly and the No Film School podcast. Until the first week in January, happy holidays and see you next year. 2018. Holla.